Today we have a really remarkable guest with us, Ryan Pickering, an advocate for nuclear energy who has embarked on an extraordinary journey, from living in a solar-powered yurt for a decade to pushing the boundaries of renewable and zero-waste living by tirelessly lobbying for transformative changes in the energy industry to combat climate change. He now advocates for the peaceful development of nuclear energy around the world and conducts his own independent research at the University of California, Berkeley. Stay tuned as we uncover his incredible stories and insights. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is a Sustainable Spirit podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. Okay, there it's gone. So, um, to start off with, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your upbringing and how it shaped your, your spiritual views on sustainability, social justice, and energy practices. Yes, thank you for a trip down memory lane. I'm actually at my parents' farm right now. I've been helping out uh, with some irrigation and preparing to host my grandparents this weekend. So it's it's a good time to talk about my upbringing. I'm not here very often. And I grew up in a stable home that turned the lights out what can I say you know I I was talking to my parents about this podcast last night over dinner and we were talking about how my upbringing instilled sustainability and and my my interest in energy and what the root of that was and I think it came from a place of poverty in my family's life. My All of my grandparents grew up poor in the Great Depression in the United States. And that was passed to my parents who, you know, did better than my grandparents. I think there was more opportunity in their era. But even in a place uh, where you can afford there's still an ethic not to waste. Even if you can afford to have things showing restraint, not because of anything more than a lack of necessity and not taking more than you need. And, you know, I grew up in a Christian household and being part of a church as well and seeing in in all church organisms maybe that's an interesting word for a church but it, it's this it's this it's this full thing that has people who can help people who are in need of help and seeing you know what any type of community really looks like you know a church is just a certain kind of community uh, you know seeing where there are opportunities to be to help and indeed, like when there were opportunities to be helped, like when my my mom had some health challenges and, you know, where that can, where support comes from, even when 
you're not asked for it. All of these things have influenced my outlook on humanity, ecology, society, and I'm trying my best to sort it out and, and live to my values today. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific moment for you, or do you think it was quite gradual? well we all rebel against our parents to a certain extent um maybe that's not true but I certainly (laughs) and I you know I thought my parents were too frugal and sometimes I still feel that way um because you know life is to be lived and let's go on that vacation and like let's Mm -hmm. get the dessert at dinner um, but that's just not that's just not how I was raised. And now I see now that I'm an adult and I have to save money and you know, there are things to be said for living a humble life. And it's afforded my parents a lot of benefit as well, you know, in in terms of when, challenges arise you do have things saved maybe money maybe resources um maybe simply having your farm in order so that when something urgent happens you have the ability to step up and address those things and so it was gradual because while i have been critical of my parents I've seen it work out for them in many ways. And I've seen them, you know, now that my grandparents' health is failing, I've seen my parents be able to step up and provide so much support for them. And because their house is in order and, you know, that gains my respect. And they're, you know, they're away at work right now. My my mother is a school teacher and uh, my father is a, a technologist working on semiconductors and artificial intelligence and self-driving cars. And, you know, even though my parents live this very, have these very modern careers, they have very traditional values and they, they tend to the the plum farm that I'm at mm-hmm. most, most hours that they're not working. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask you now about the yurts that you lived in for 10 years. I remember you mentioning it last time we spoke how first of all what what led you to decide to live in a yurt for 10 years and then how did this impact your your perspective on environmentalism and energy well in my 20s I became very interested in sustainability and you know I think that was a combination of some of these early publications coming out, you know, uh, An Inconvenient Truth, I think came out in 2008 or something. And that's kind of when like climate awareness for my generation millennials began and, and really started to pick up steam. And I was really concerned and I still am, but my concerns have, have, have changed and become more nuanced. But I wanted to, in my 20s, I wanted to figure out how humanity could realign with nature 
And how could we live in a way that would work for everyone? And how could we achieve egalitarianism, democracy, peace through resource security and also like find deeper uh, human health through, you know, better, eating better foods and being, you know, outside and I had all these different ideas that I wanted to toy around with. And I was building solar power systems at the time. I was a solar engineer in Southern California. And I met this woman who wanted a solar power system for her, I would call it a ranch up in the mountains above Los Angeles in a place called Topanga Canyon. And her property really wasn't suited for solar energy, but I, I built her a whole design and we became friends in the process. And I ultimately advised her not to build a, new, a solar power system because it wasn't really wasn't feasible for the property. And she said she appreciated that advice. And would I like to build a house in her backyard? <laughs> And so that was a, it was a funny coincidence because I had been thinking about how much I would like to build a home and, and, and experiment with some of the sustainable living practices that I had been reading about. And so that's what I did. And that was in, you know, 2012, this woman gave me this offer and we worked together to, to design a yurt. And we came up, came up with an agreement that any, anything that I built on her property would become her property. And my time would be worth a certain amount per hour. And all materials and my time, she would subtract from future rent payments to live there. Mm, so yeah. you know, ultimately, I was able to build it. And she gave me about six and a half years of free rent. and. That was a, she was, she's an older woman and still a close friend. And that was a really thoughtful way to benefit both of us. You know, she got a fully built yurt that um, was built to the best of my abilities. And I was able to, you know, have experience that and, and put the money up front and then have a, affordable place to live in my 20s and so that's what I did and you know it's it was all electric and solar powered um, with a composting toilet a gray water filtration system and you know a small garden out back and it was a really meager way to live in many ways but I was also very happy in, in that time and and I learned a lot and I, I carried that that lesson with me and though I don't live there anymore um you know I it informs my writing and it informs the policy that I'm working on and um, I'm sure I'll carry it forward for the rest of my life how did you approach such a big project like when you say to yourself that you're gonna build a year that's solar powered and all electric with a composting toilet and a gray water filtration system. How did you actually go about that all by yourself? 
YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it all on YouTube, all of it. Oh. And, and, and help from some older craftsmen in the community. Um, so I definitely had help and I don't think I could have done it just with YouTube. And in fact, I'm sure of it. And I was able to, since I was living up there and like hanging out at the lumber yard and talking to people, especially plumbing, plumbing is really challenging. Um, it's just gravity, but you know, every, every system is different and, and electrical, which I later, I, I, performed a lot of electrical upgrades to the yurt as I lived there. And I hired electricians because it's, it's this, electricity is just magic. Don't even get me started. We can talk about that <laughs> later, but um, you know, it, yeah, I would say YouTube for the easy stuff and, and consulting, um, you know, experts, uh, for for some of the more challenging things even just yeah. to review my work or help me think through things and I would just you know pay people 20 bucks here and there and most people just would give me the advice for free um, and that also helped me situate myself in the community because I lived in that town for 10 years and it was kind of a rural town called Topanga Canyon and I would see the electrician and the handyman that helped me build it and I would host them for dinner parties for years to come so uh, you know it does it does take community to build things or at least that's how I decided to do it and I found great benefit to that. And why did you what led you to stop living in the year? Well I felt like I had gotten most of, <laughs> had learned a lot of lessons to it. And in some ways I felt like my identity was starting to become wrapped in it. You know, people kind of knew me as like, oh, Ryan, the yurt guy, you know, <laughs> he lives in a yurt. And I'm like, oh, I, I'm also like a successful energy developer and friend and basketball player. And I do other things, but so that, I mean, I just need uh, life as a progression and I felt like in some ways I thought I could just be a hermit and live in my yurt for the rest of my life um, but I also had an opportunity at the company I worked at to move to the Bay Area and work on a solar powered battery system and really take my career to the next level so that's what it took to kind of bump me to that next that next phase. And I live in Berkeley, California now, and it has, you know, it has led to progression. Whenever you kind of uproot and go for something new, there's always lessons there. There's always new people to meet. And I want to keep doing that. And, yeah. you know, I've moved around a lot in my life. That's actually the longest I've lived anywhere was in the yurt. And um, so had to move on. So at this, this point that you're talking, you're still very much in to solar energy. Uh, at what point did you then pivot into nuclear energy? And how do you believe overall that nuclear energy can contribute to sustainable and socially just practices in the future? When I moved to the Bay Area, you know, that's where 
a lot of wind and solar technology is headquartered and the software that's kind of stitching it all together because with wind and solar you know these are weather dependent energy sources and we need software to take the wind from here to a city 500 miles away and connect all these pieces in this highly digitized renewable grid that many are theorizing about right now and once you get into the mix and you see uh, technology needs and, you know, the Bay Area is incredible because it has this, you can see the whole world from the Bay Area. It's such a hyper-connected place. And the, deep, the deeper I went into this wind and solar powered world, the less confidence I had in it. Because, you know, you see how much energy humans use and, and you see all the good things we do with it, you know, with all the trees we don't have to chop down because we have electricity from dams and, you know, all the different ways we make electricity. And you can, I started to theorize that maybe instead of returning to the land in this like vision I had of humans living a far more agrarian, simplified lifestyle that didn't use as much energy, maybe we could use energy to decouple ourselves from our impact on the planet. And that idea continued to germinate. And, you know, it was a lot of different things converging as well, because, you know, solar and wind are they do make energy, but they're, that energy is often, especially for rooftop solar, is often reserved for wealthy people. You know, I noticed that most of my clients were wealthy people with homes that could benefit from solar energy. And in California, we've been learning that while that is great for wealthy people because they don't have to pay their power bills, the costs of maintaining our electricity grid are being shifted to people who do not have solar. And many people, working class people, poor people who can't get solar because they're renters or their house can't hold solar panels on the roof. And so it started to get me thinking because I used to think that wind and solar was just this inherently good energy technology and all other technologies needed to be dismantled. And over time, I, I've been learning that the picture is more complex than that. And I'm embracing that complexity and trying to find, trying to find long-term solutions, not just for the next 10 years. Everyone's so concerned about decarbonizing in the next 10 years. I think I've kind of let go of some of that fear. And I'm now more concerned about building a truly sustainable system that humans can use for hundreds, thousands of years. I'm really trying to trying to see the long-term vision instead of getting caught up with some of like the some of like the climate catastrophe that we're feeling in this moment, because I think some of that will calm down. And I believe that humans can adapt and innovate and rise to this challenge, but only if we build 
really informed systems and and come together as a society which is going to be a challenge yeah yeah i i agree uh there's definitely i i definitely noticed what you were saying about that certain kinds of energy being accessible to people who are more wealthy and i think with a lot of things that are quote unquote sustainable this the same idea applies where to eat sustainably is really expensive to live sustainably to drive a more sustainable vehicle um, and to make it accessible to everyone what will that take because obviously also like what you were saying is is that different kinds of energy just don't work everywhere for everyone you know here in england we don't get as much sunlight as california so solar would not work well here what and yet yeah you know england is building a lot of solar and yeah. so is canada and michigan and all these germany <laughs> all these places that are not that sunny and i'm here in california saying hey it's not even really working here mm -hmm. you know so if if solar can't power a even, a, you know, California uses a lot of power, but it's not like an industrialized place to either. Um, you know, we don't have that many factories and huge energy usage, but we still, you know, solar power is maybe 20% of California on a sunny day. And we have mm -hmm. a lot of solar. I mean, you basically can't look anywhere in California at this point without seeing a solar panel in the distance. Yeah. Like, I can see on the farms around my parents' house, there's solar panels. I mean, they're everywhere. And yeah. yeah, it it all has led me to nuclear energy, which you which you have mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I mean, well, I hope we have a lot of time to discuss it. It's a complex yeah. uh, history and technology, but it gives me a lot of hope. And mm -hmm. and I think that the world is finding renewed optimism around nuclear energy and especially young people. I'm seeing a lot of young people like kind of having the clarity to move past some of the superstitions of the past and say, hey, what, what about this thing that we've been working on for a hundred years? You know, could this, could this perhaps yeah. uh, be a tool for sustainability and, and, and for everyone too, not just not just for some, but it that's what I like most about, about nuclear energy is it's for everyone because one nuclear power plant, you know, 500 miles away from here could power my parents' whole farm and every farm between us. And it's been taken out of the conversation for some interesting historic and sociological reasons and we'll see if it can restore its um its its place in the conversation yeah. I, i'm seeing a lot of good signs around the world well that's a nice segue to my next question which is about um can you tell me more about the innovative and unconventional approaches that you've taken to promote nuclear energy through your activism yeah, so about a year and a half ago, the light bulb went off for me in nuclear energy. 
I had become frustrated with wind and solar and batteries. It just, once you see the scale and how much materials it takes to build wind and solar and how frequently they break, you know, even if they work great, they'll only last for 10, 10 years for the batteries, mm -hmm. 20, 30 years for the solar and wind. So you're constantly replacing them too. And, you know, that's what I had been doing a lot at my company is just taking old solar panels off and putting new solar panels on. And we were still figuring out how to recycle them. And I started imagining this like world where we like constantly replacing solar and wind and having to get new materials. And it became, it became overwhelming to me. And so I was reading in the newspaper that where California is planning to close its uh, only nuclear power plant. Now, California had a plan to be 100% nuclear powered in the 60s, in this time where we were like, we've solved everything. We can just, and it was, they had a plan to build 14 nuclear power plants to power 100% of California and export power to neighboring states. But through this complex history of nuclear energy, that vision kept getting trimmed down. And uh, let's see, four nuclear power plants were ultimately built in California. One in Northern California, um, Humboldt Bay, one outside of Sacramento, one in San Diego. Oh, and then another small one outside of San Jose. And then most famously, Diablo Canyon power plant, which is still operating today in the central coast of California. And it's the largest source of energy in California. It makes up about 50% of the clean energy in California. And it produces more energy than all rooftop solar power systems combined in California. So every solar power system you see driving around California all of them added together is this one nuclear power plant, which has two reactors, has two domes, and it spins two different turbines. And each turbine is a 1.1 giga, gigawatt turbine uh, spun by the steam of boiling water using a nuclear fission reaction. And I admit I didn't I knew Diablo was out there and it had this epic name like the devil you know <laughs> like and everyone wanted it closed because there's this fear of nuclear energy that it's gonna there's gonna be an accident and everyone's gonna you know be harmed and I was reading about it in the paper and they said in the newspaper it said that the system was designed to run for 40 more years but they were retiring it now and replacing it with wind and solar. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just, that was the moment for me where I just like, it didn't line up. It just didn't align. And, and I got mad because to me, like it was wasteful. If this is something, there was no like safety issues with it. You know, they say it, it's it's near an earthquake fault, which is true for everywhere in California. There are earthquake faults everywhere in California. And they said, you know, we can't risk an earthquake hitting the plant. But then, so I started researching it and I found this community of people that wanted to preserve the plant. And they were mostly young people. 
and I connected with them and was kind of cautious. I was like, hey, I'm a solar developer, but I kind of want to like, I feel like we need nuclear. And they're like, you're a solar person that thinks nuclear is valuable. Come on in. And they were really kind to me. And we ended up, you know, I ended up becoming totally obsessed with this mission to save Diablo. And uh, we organized a rally uh, at the courthouse by the plant. And it was young people, it was all women speakers. And that was in um, December, 2021, we threw that rally. And um, I think it changed history. And a lot of people were there, um, including local elected officials and people who worked at the plant and the local indigenous tribe called Yaktichu Tichu Yaktilhini also sent representatives to the rally. And since then I've met members of the tribe and learned about, about their history on the land and why they also are support nuclear energy. And you know, so for the past year and a half, I've been organizing and trying to save this plant. And so far we've had that we've gotten the plant extended five years. It was supposed to shut down in a year from now. Now it's shutting down in 2030. And now we're working to extend for an additional 15 years and hopefully the full 40 years because the whole world is kind of waking up to this energy realism that's all around us. Mm -hmm. What are the challenges of transitioning from non-renewable sources of energy to sustainable energy practices like nuclear? And how, how can these challenges be overcome in the future where this is going to be increasingly more important? Yeah, well, we have to build a better system than what we have. And better doesn't just mean cleaner. It means a lot of things. So, you know, growing up in California and working in solar, I've always been very negative towards fossil fuels. And I think I see a lot of wrath towards fossil fuels in our generations. And, you know, everyone's feeling that way. And, but over the past year, as I've studied energy more deeply, I have grown to a, a certain respect for fossil fuels in that number one, fossil fuels helped us transition off of the wood economy. You know, until like the 1850s, we had to cut down trees to survive. And we were deforesting the planet as we grew. You know, most of Europe, the forests in Europe were cut down. I mean, I think almost every ancient forest in the UK and England was cut down. Yeah. Because, we, and just in the nick of time, we discovered coal. We were just digging around and there was these black rocks and they, you could kind of break them up and set them on fire and they would burn for two days. And people were like, oh my gosh, good thing. Cause we're like out of trees. And, you know, and, and coal was originally embraced by environmentalists as this way to preserve our forests. And early environmentalist groups like Sierra Club were in support of coal because it was a better alternative than wood. And so like, I try to like find empathy 
for fossil fuels and and the world around us the the, the great abundance and and comfort that we have is because of fossil fuels you know the, the fact that we can travel around the world the fact that we can heat our homes to make them comfortable the the the, the plastic that's all around us and does all these amazing things for us and even the energy we're using right now is a majority fossil fuels and it's because it works and it just has this challenge that it's an extraction economy that you know we have to constantly be pulling it out of the earth and that has a tremendous environmental footprint and then there's the emissions issues you know it emits NOx and SOx which we've gotten better about about pollution but it's always going to emit carbon and even even then we're trying to do carbon capture on fossil fuels and while i think our anger at fossil fuels is justified and the lobbyists like kind of hit for fossil fuel companies hid climate change from us and obscured that and still to do to this day i also have to be real that the system we have is pretty efficient and it's led to a great prosperity for all humans you know obviously rich people have gotten richer off of fossil fuels and all that but also poor people have found a lot of agency through fossil fuels and we the only way i see that we can transition away from fossil fuels is by building a more efficient more cost effective mousetrap and you know wind and solar have been the only way that we feel is able to transition away from that but wind and solar are not energy dense you know one one gallon of gasoline is like creates more energy in a day than a whole you know 40 solar panels on your roof and you know this is a challenge that we need to rise to and i think if you look at the history of energy you see that it's a march upward in efficiency you know coal wasn't very efficient and we made like found better coal and more efficient ways to burn it and get more energy out of it and then we found natural gas and that was even more efficient and easier to get and more efficient and now we found uranium which can create nuclear fission which is many thousand times more efficient than a gallon of gasoline and so we're i see nuclear fission as a natural next step and we but the challenge will be overcoming the stigma of nuclear energy and so that's that's the greatest challenge i see of all and you know i think wind and solar will definitely play a role certainly in off-grid places that the grid cannot access wind and solar are amazing options but wind and solar need tremendous amounts of energy to build them. And today, all wind and solar are built with coal energy, not just electricity, but also the heat from burning special kinds of coal so that we can smelt steel and bend metals and all these things. Um, so we need to find a better energy source so that we can continue this modern world that we live in. Um, and not, you know, skyrocket the cost of energy to a place where no one can afford anything and, and society will fall apart. And I think that's a legitimate fear. Um, you know, I, we get real caught up on the climate crisis and the unlivable planet, 
But if we don't have an affordable society to exist in, I think that is also, a, that might be, to me, it's a, it's a larger threat than climate. Yeah. In it's the, the two sides to sustainability is the, the social side and the environmental side. Yes. And um, yeah. Uh, so I guess on that note, just thinking back to the very beginning of our conversation when we were talking about your upbringing and how that influenced your your policy and everything, can you speak to any of the spiritual or ethical considerations that might come into play for you when you're engaging with nuclear energy? Yes, you know, as someone who grew up, you know, my father uh, was originally a, before he became a, a semiconductor engineer, my father was a pastor. And that's how I grew up um, and knew my father. And, you know, he has always taken a very progressive view of the life of Jesus of Nazareth and how he was kind of this fulfillment of this other side of the Old Testament where like, you know, God in the Old Testament was like a really omnipotent um, and kind of hardlined God where it's like kind of like it was obedience or, or being cut off. And he saw Jesus as this other side to God where it was about grace and love and salvation for everyone, not just Jewish people. And, you know, and, and I think my father really embodies that. And so does my mother. And like, you know, my, my mom always taught me growing up that, you know, God can't love you anymore. And he can't love you any less either. And, you know, it's just like, you're just, you're just, you're just wrapped in this, in this grace and, and like, whether you like it or not, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of helped me like, it gave me the security to exist in a place for others and like having this um, servants mentality or like the I am third mentality it's very popular where it's like God is first others are second and I'm third and like you're constantly like you're radiating towards others and like that's what the good life is is a life of service and that is true in my day-to-day -day life and I still live those values but it also started to transcend to my interest and care for all people and all life and all creation and you know I've carried those things with me and, and that's why my my work has only broadened its scope you know from doing solar power just for one house to doing solar power for a shopping center to talking about energy systems for a whole society and a whole country and the whole world. And how can we build something that's gonna work for everyone? How can we serve everyone? Because we know that when people are taken care of, we can overcome strife. And you know, a lot of the tragedies of the world are because people don't have what they need to survive. And, you know, we see war and crime through these things. And 
I just always believe that if if we can build heaven on earth, if we can provide for everyone, then we can eradicate sin. And, you know, I've studied a lot of other religions in my life as well. And it, it all, you know, it's all tapping into this idea of like service and fulfillment. And I try to bring that with me in in my work for sure and in my personal life and i hope that answers your question yeah it does that was a very good answer and and do you think that for people who they're like aren't in their career committed to energy how in their everyday lives or in their homes would you suggest that they implement this idea of service through the way we use our energy Mm. yeah I feel so lucky that I get to work on the things that I'm passionate about and but at the same time I have the most respect for working people and you know I, I try to do this exercise called energy realism. And it's the opposite of energy blindness because in our society, we just, we're just floating on top of so much effort from so many people. And in energy realism, you see like how much care and how much work people and society and groups and organizations have put together. And it helps me really respect working people. And, you know, that's, who I'm most aligned with. And I I hope my work reflects that. And I I feel like people serve so much, even in their own jobs. You know, I don't, I'm not sure you have to just be a volunteer servant. If you're, if you're someone out there who's maintaining any of our systems that we rely on, I, I find that to be a, a servant's life. And I think that, you know, we're, we're all self-interested. We have to stay alive. You know, no one's, no one's going to cook me breakfast, you know, and well, maybe someday, but like (laughs) that service is, is countered by the needs of all people and like our inherent level of selfishness that is required to survive and I think that as long as we're operating from a place of gratitude and exercising energy realism and seeing like, wow, what an incredible, what an incredible place society is, and that's worthy of being defended and defending society can mean so many things. And I, you know, and that, that can mean, you know, just helping out your neighbor when they're having a hard time, you know, it can mean doing your job well and doing quality work so that the things you work on function for a long time. I, those values don't seem to be glorified as much in society anymore, but their, their, their importance hasn't gone away. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we can continue to elevate heroes or maybe elevate heroes more that are committed to this kind of servant's mentality, because I, those are the people who have certainly earned the, the majority of my respect. Yeah. 
I want to come back to what you were saying about the the public opinion of nuclear energy because I think that a lot of of what you're saying about service kind of ties into that because it does take a lot of courage and bravery to advocate for something that you know you're going to get backlash on. So I wanted to ask you how how do you address all of the negative connotations associated with nuclear energy versus other kinds of renewable energy? And how do you work to shift the public perspective of it? Hmm. A lot of deep breathing. <laughs> A lot of deep breathing. You know, I learned that in yoga. Just if you get anything out of a yoga class, it's just breathing. It's not doing the, it's not doing the perfect pose. It's not having the perfect comeback. It's just about breathing through it. And, and through breath, I find respect. And through respect, I find empathy. And most people who attack me about nuclear energy are operating from a place of fear or some other place of harm. And I consider it my role to find patience, breathe through it, don't react, just consider what they're really trying to say. Where are they really coming from? Are they really scared that the nuclear power plant is going to blow up like a bomb, even though that's not how it works? Maybe. And maybe I just need to explain that to them, that you know, nuclear energy is the opposite of nuclear weapons and that nuclear weapons are truly terrible. And I agree that we should eradicate nuclear weapons from earth. I think that level of fear must be transcended by humanity. If we can't trust each other, then we're never going to be able to, you know, create a sustainable society. And I try to find common ground and I, I don't even really try to convince them. I just try to show them humanity. And that seems to work for me. That's, you know, my personality. Um, but, and if people want to engage, then I'll go as deeply as I can. I have that kind of time right now, maybe not forever um, as my career progresses, but I, am honored by the opportunity to represent this technology and my own experiences and share it with the world because fear is a tremendously damaging thing and especially fear of things that aren't actually dangerous <laughs> that's that seems very wasteful to me so um you know i to answer your question it's it's out of empathy and, and truly love for humanity. You know, I, it's sometimes in my life I've disliked humans. I feel like we're destroying the planet. I, I think we we've all been there. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I think we see, we feel that way every time we see a bunch of trash on the side of the road and, you know, we see wars and school shootings and we just like, it's so, but I, you know, I feel like in this conversation, we're talking a lot about duality and I like duality as a concept, both physically and spiritually. 
And, but I see the other side, humans are so incredible and I love humans. And I just, I try to stay rooted in that love and that optimism because humans do amazing things. And what can we do to empower us to, to operate from this place of, you know, creativity and, and hard work, um, instead of, you know, fear and um, disassociation and um, rivalry and all these things that kind of come from, uh, they come from ignorance and fear and, and also poverty, you know, and I just see nuclear energy as a way to, to transcend all those things and to solve a lot of those social issues as well as economic issues. Yeah, I was speaking to another guest about Gandhian conflict resolution and how and and just about Gandhi's approach to the protests that he was in and he used this approach called uh, satyagraha which was about very much about like changing your perspective from being about having a goal in an argument to more about the process and about trying to see someone else's perspective and then take an interest in what they're thinking about. And what really what really struck me about just the conversation that I had was that the book is called Gandhi's Way and he was talking about how in most of the arguments we have, what we're arguing about is not really what the argument is about. And I think that what you're touching on is it's kind of similar in that when people are arguing about nuclear energy or not no nuclear energy it's kind of a similar situation and that the the way to convince people is not to further ostracize them but to apply this kind of approach so on that on that note I was wondering if you could say more about just the intersectionality of environmentalism and social energy and where does nuclear energy fit into all of this? Yes, I've studied Gandhi and I think I've internalized some of those, um, some of those rhetorical concepts or strategies. And, you know, going deeper into it, what's interesting is that I'm often discussing nuclear energy with traditional environmentalists and groups that I have been aligned with in the past. And I found it very interesting that we're all trying to solve the energy problem, which is kind of at the root of human problems because, well, certainly like the sustainability issue, most pollution is created at its root from our energy sources. So if we can solve energy, like we pretty much solve the climate crisis and and the cost of living crisis as well, or energy poverty, as many call it, you know, if we can solve energy poverty like that, that fixes pretty much everything else. And the people that I'm talking to nuclear energy about are also totally committed to solving these things. And so it makes it, it's, challenging because we're there's they've just traditionally nuclear energy has 
not been a solution. And in fact, it's served as a catalyst to many of their strategies is how to make it all work without nuclear energy. And, but it also makes it easy because we're speaking the same language. We have the same, we're, we're actually aligned on our goals. And I, as I find that it's just conversation-based. No one, very few people have changed their mind on nuclear energy by reading a book or like reading some really good Twitter take or some YouTube video, you know, it really comes from having a conversation with someone who has looked into this or can speak to it. And, you know, everyone can be a nuclear advocate because the science really holds up to scrutiny. Um, and I don't expect everyone to become a nuclear expert and understand every little aspect of the process. Um, but I find that it is about conversation and that's intimidating because it's like, well, shoot, I don't know if I have time to talk one-on-one -on -one to everyone on the planet <laughs> and tell them about the wonders of nuclear energy, but uh, that's what podcasts are for. And that's what, you know, that's what enabling this idea and so that this idea can be spread. And um, so I'm just, I just do my best to be honest and, and find truth and, and say that I don't know things when I don't know things and, you know, and just keep breathing and be patient with folks and, and try to avoid being snarky or that just doesn't work for me or, or like the comebacks. And I certainly have, you know, if, if I look back on all, all the conversations I've had on nuclear, I have, you know, I have become frustrated and um, it's okay. It's just, it's just a daily practice. I, I'm learning as well because a lot of times the frustration comes from people saying some of the hardest things about nuclear energy, like about its need for water to create energy and, you know, how expensive it is or how long it takes to build. And these are good objections and I'm learning to talk about them. And nuclear energy is not perfect. Nothing is perfect on this world. Everything is trade-offs. Yeah. Um, but what I like about nuclear energy is the trade-offs are mostly upfront. It's just very complicated to build and takes a lot of time and a lot of cooperation. I think that's the mm -hmm. hardest thing about nuclear energy is it takes tremendous social cooperation through multiple election cycles. You know, a politician can't say, let's build a nuclear power plant. Well, it takes, you know, it takes 10 years to build a nuclear power plant. And so it, it has to be this commitment to to a greater good that that transcends you know money markets and the stock market that wants to see quarterly earnings and politicians who want to make promises and you know it, it takes generations of commitment and right and that is truly a challenge mm -hmm. I was really struck at the beginning by by what you were saying about uh, Diablo the Diablo power plant and how a lot of the local tribes actually supported it. So could you, could you say more about how, how we ensure that sustainable and socially just energy practices align with indigenous and traditional knowledge and practices? Yes, I think this is one of the most 
important things I'm working on. And I've been long-winded. I'll try to be a little more directed in what I'm saying here. But essentially what I learned about Diablo Canyon Power Plant is that it was built on top of one of the villages of a local tribe. And that tribe's land was stolen from them by Spanish missionaries 200, 300 years ago. And they have been trying to get their land back ever since. And the realities are complicated. Um, you know, there are 60 people in the tribe and they were, you know, they were systematically destroyed by the mission system. Their children were taken away from them and raised in, in the church, in the, in, the, in the Catholic mission there. And, you know, and many of the people in the tribe are, are, are Catholic today. Um, and they, but they also hold, you know, some of their, tra some traditional indigenous views. And many of those, much of their spirituality was lost. Uh, in that time, you know, just like most indigenous tribes in the United States, uh, they were, their, their depowering was primarily from disease, you know, smallpox and other things would generally wipe out 80% of the population. It wasn't even really a fair fight, you know, they just had, you know, mass death in, early on in their experiences with colonialism and in that you just lose tremendous amounts of knowledge and then when it's further wiped out from assimilation you know these things are lost and a lot of people want to treat indigenous people like they with this blood quantum of like how indigenous are you and what spirituality and it's like hey cool it you know the past is complicated and these people are like yeah i'm so i'm i'm partially indigenous i'm part irish what about it you know does that make my claim to the land less let's talk about it and i think you know people people have this idea that there's the, the indigenous people are very other they're this this kind of like mythical thing but there there's indigenous people all around us and it's it's part of our living history and i think we all need to just like take a deep breath and be a little cooler about it and realize that history is complicated and what can we learn? And what I learned is that indigenous people helped build Diablo Canyon power plant in the 60s. Yeah. They were on the concrete pouring team. And some people in the tribe work at the power plant today. And the people in the tribe see that Diablo Canyon powers 10% of all of California, this one nuclear power plant, 10%. And um, and that's valuable to all people in their community because it, you know, employs 1,600 people in the town that they live in, and and that it's also already built. And yeah, it's on top of their land, and they were like digging up artifacts from the tribe and like not telling people about it while building it. You know, there's some tragedy in that, but like it's already built and it's working great. So why wouldn't we continue that? And I think. There's this pan-indigenous knowledge that values land, sky, and water. And these are these three values that should be respected. And you'll see that 
in a lot of American indigenous spirituality. And uh, the tribe says, look, nuclear energy has the lowest impact on land because it's very space efficient. In one acre, you can make the same amount of power as, as you know thousands of acres of solar or oil or whatever. And then even mining uranium is very efficient and hardly disrupts the land at all. It's done now in this very modern way. And it creates no emissions. So from a sky standpoint, you know, it doesn't pollute the sky at all. And from a water standpoint, yes, it uses water to cool the reactor, but it doesn't expose it to radiation. And at Diablo Canyon, the water is sucked out of the ocean, cools the reactor, and then is put back in the ocean. And a lot of people that really bothers them because they feel that it's contaminated. But if you look at the ecosystem off the coast, it is the strongest ecosystem in the, on the California coast. And the, the seaweed grows up to 24 inches a day. And the fish population is outrageous. And I've fished right off the coast and eaten the fish right out of the water, right in front of the nuclear power plant. And, and obviously so is the tribe. And the tribe is now seeking the land back. They want this, there's all this land surrounding the plant that's owned by the utility company and they want it reassigned to them and they'll manage the land and allow the nuclear power plant to continue operating. And it can operate for 40 more years, but ultimately nuclear power plants can run forever. You can keep uh, updating the components or you can just build another nuclear power plant right next to the old one, take the old one down and build a new one there. So a site that has nuclear is, is the, the best site for it. And it can be a power plant for humanity forever. And the tribe understands that. And they said, as long as it's been, it's done with tribal oversight, especially because it's on our land, like very much our land, like our village was right there. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a way that we can find restorative justice. And, and that's a way that we can get more social buy-in from the community mm -hmm. and from the world and be an example for the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, yeah, I guess I, I hadn't considered, I hadn't considered that before. So that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and I guess just, just generally, how, how would you propose just across the board that energy, clean energy, particularly, um, be made accessible to people who at the moment might not be able to afford it or might not even know very much about it. Because I remember at the beginning you, you talking about how this is actually quite a big problem because only rich people can currently afford energy that's sustainable. Yeah, I think it it comes with the recognition that nuclear energy is clean energy. First of all, as a society, I think the United States needs to come to that conclusion and the federal government, in the United States and in the UK, all of us are saying like, Hey, we need new, more nuclear energy and nuclear is clean energy and, and kind of push back against these groups that say that nuclear is, is bad. And, you know, I think those groups have had a good run for the past 30 years. 
Um, but it's time to push back with integrity on that idea. And because in many ways, you know, a poor person who lives close to that nuclear power plant and rents an apartment has far cleaner energy than some rich person in Marin with a bunch of solar panels on their roof. That's the outrageous thing is nuclear energy is, is in many ways the cleanest forms of energy. I would say in every way. I'm happy to talk about that in detail with people who want to reach out to me. Um, but you know, rich people want to feel like they have cleaner energy, but in reality, like poor people who are connected to the grid actually have cl cleaner energy, the, the cleanest energy. And that if we just built 10 more nuclear power plants in California or 14 or 20 or whatever, everyone could have clean energy and there wouldn't be this competition of like my power is clean and yours everyone's power is just clean done we're decarbonized in our energy sector and we can all celebrate that together and that takes cooperation so i would i think people need to kind of transcend this like tribalism and this idea that like i have my solar panels and it's like no no we we all if we don't all have clean energy then none of us really have clean energy because we're yeah. all interconnected. And I think realizing that, building more nuclear here, and then also sharing nuclear energy with the developing world is important. And I'm gonna say something controversial here. Some, sometimes nuclear isn't, is challenging. It's getting easier. New nuclear technology is easier to build and we should absolutely, I believe this should be America's foreign policy. It's like, hey, you wanna be friends? Great. Do you want a ton of electricity, by the way? And by the way, like all developing countries are like, yes, God, we're like, we're running out of trees, you know, like, and, and we want what you have. And a lot of times, like, especially in the developing world, we're like, hey, just kind of live in your hut because we have the, our modern lifestyle and like, and we're bad for it, but we're not going to give it up. But like you are actually kind of living a sustainable lifestyle. So you just keep like living that like sustenance lifestyle and we're not giving them an option to modernize or, you know, whatever word, like have what we have. And they want it, by the way. Like if you, they're like, we don't want to be sustenance farmers, you know, we want to like employ machines so that we can work less and enjoy abundance. And I think we have this like idea of like nobility of, of like people in developing world, like they live the way we want to live. Anyways, that's a whole nother subject, but I think the U.S. should come in and say, like, hey, we would love to help you develop a nuclear program, and it's going to take 20 years. And by the way, in the meantime, we might even need to build you a fossil fuel plant. And because that's we can build them faster and we can kind of jumpstart their economy. And like ah, this, this feels controversial to say even now, even though I believe it, but, you know, it's maybe maybe we can skip over fossil fuels. I think that's what the World Bank wants. They, and right now we just say, okay, here's some solar panels and a couple batteries and you can charge your phones with it, but you can't really industrialize. You can't build factories and stuff with a little solar microgrid. And meanwhile, China and Russia are doing this. They have these foreign policy plans that are like, hey, we're gonna build you transmission wires. We're gonna build you nuclear power plants. We're gonna get you on the global stage. And you know, I have critiques about China and Russia and the totalitarianism that and that we that those societies experience. And I just think that we should 
push back with our own version of that instead of saying that, you know, because I think we're losing and a lot of these a lot of these developing countries are going to China and Russia because we're denying the United States doesn't believe in nuclear very strongly still, even though we invented it. And so and it's not part of our foreign policy. And to me, it just kind of feels like colonialization because we'll mine uranium in their country and we'll take it and we'll burn it here, but we won't let them benefit from this incredible technology. So I, that's how I would solve it is, is build it into American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess just really quickly to finish off, how, for, for people listening, how would you suggest they integrate nuclear energy into their, their spiritual practice, their ethical practice, their day-to-day -day lives in a way that is accessible but also meaningful? I would say just be curious about nuclear and um, if you've if you've disqualified it as part of a solution to our energy future, I would ask you to to look again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Wikipedia has quite a bit about nuclear energy, and while I do feel it has a slightly anti-nuclear slant, just because anti-nuclearism is very popular, and you know, Wikipedia is written by people. Uh, look up if your area has a nuclear power plant where's the closest nuclear power plant to you like look how it works look how much energy it generates look how many people work there try to find people that work there and you know maybe they're part of your community and be a little bit more curious about it you know i, I hear a lot of people who work at nuclear power plants actually feel ostracized in their community because people are like oh you're radioactive you know and or like, ew, you work at this place that's bad when they know that they're powering a majority of the whole area there they live in with the cleanest energy humanity has ever made. So it's there's a lot of. I would say embrace the cognitive dissonance around nuclear energy, like instead of shying away from it because it's confusing and like we there's the competing narratives like be curious about that and see see if see if you can come up with your own um feelings about it and i bet you you'll get a lot get interested in it because that just seems to be the way once you get curious about nuclear energy you see how much history is behind it you know we invented nuclear energy in the 1940s and have been perfecting it ever since and there was there's this dream is still alive that we can power our whole society not just electricity but also heat and energy and create synthetic fuels that so we can fly planes with fuel that was made out of nuclear energy from hydrogen and carbon and we can you know there's this idea that we can actually solve our greatest challenges um with this technology and so you know i'd love yeah. to further that conversation and you can find me on linkedin and and yeah. you can see how i'm talking about it and we can engage there yeah are you ready for the quick fire questions sure okay so if you live to be 200 what's one thing you would do differently I think I would be more disciplined about my sunscreen 
regimen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the sun is radioactive. Um, and that's where like skin cancer comes from. It's like, we're like basking in radiation all the time. That's an interesting yeah, thing about that. the world. And uh, yeah, the sun is, sun is pretty strong. Um, so, uh, and I'm pretty fair skinned. So I think I'm trying to wear sunscreen every day and a hat, maybe moisturize at night. I'm still, mm -hmm. still mastering my skincare. Yeah. Um, uh, the next, I feel like we've talked about the next one just the whole time, but what is one misconception about your fields that you would like to debunk? Uh, I think I'll spend the rest of my life debunking nuclear fear, this yeah. manufactured fear of nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the worst advice you've been given? Oh, um, using toothpaste without fluoride. Someone told me like, hey, it's bad for you. And like, you should use natural toothpaste. And I did. And I got so many cavities. <laughs> so I switched back to fluoride toothpaste and I haven't gotten any cavities since then. So that's good. <laughs> um, what's the most underrated spiritual teaching you've come across? Um, I went to Burning Man a few years ago and there was just this wall with this spray paint, someone spray painted on it and it just said 1% in the past, 1% in the future, and 100% in the present. <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of spirituality does focus on being present, especially Eastern philosophies and spiritualities, but also Western as well. It's like, I think we just spin out thinking about the past or the future and we forget that it's, we just gotta be right here. You know, this is reality is right now. And the decisions we, decisions we make right now matter. And so I, I try to remind myself to be present and to, and to, and all that entails. Yeah. Okay. The last one is Claire, Booth Moose once told President Kennedy, a great man is one sentence. What's your sentence? I'm a poet and I've been playing around a lot with sentences, trying to get ideas down to its, their most minimal, you know, trying to separate out all the wheat from the chaff, if you will. And so it's currently my Instagram bio and it's a little bit corny. But I, I, I do, I, it encompasses my life and it's my belief that we can save the earth with energy for everyone. And I like it because there's optimism. We can save the earth. There's, there's no reason to be like despondent or a doomer. And with energy for everyone, meaning like we don't have to have austerity. We don't have to like, be like deny ourselves to a certain extent you know I think we need to be efficient but we don't have to like all live in caves we can we can save birth with energy for everyone and then you can kind of flip it around and it's like only with energy for everyone can we save earth 
you know, only if we're all empowered can we save Earth and, you know, transcend energy poverty and transcend the climate crisis because we have clean energy for everyone and we've, we've decoupled from our impact on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciated it and it was very interesting. Uh, I learned a lot and yeah you just had a very interesting life and and I think it's just enjoyable to talk to you about nuclear energy and um, your journey through solar and wind and how you came to these conclusions about how to approach the, the energy issues in the world right now so so thank you for that. Thank you, Sophia. I really admire the path you're on and your curiosity to get to the bottom of all of these really complex subjects. And um, I look forward to following along and, and learning myself. Thank you. If you made it to the end, thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that conversation as fascinating as I did. And you can hear in the background some kind of tree fall. Sorry. Um, If you would like to learn more about nuclear energy or contact Ryan Pickering, you can find him on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube, and the links to all of these will be in the show notes. So make sure to go check them out. And uh, thank you once again so much for listening. I will see you next time.